Almost every week after our service, I'm out there talking with people, and I realize in my conversations with so many of you that almost all of us comes when we gather together with questions. And some of you, you might be investigating Christianity and you're wondering, what is this whole thing about? Uh, some of you, you know, you just want to grow deeper with God and you're thinking, how can I know God? And maybe some are caught up in some addiction in your life. You need some freedom. You're like, how can I be free? But you know, there are a lot of, of you that are very practical. And the primary question that you put to me when I talk to you is, when are the restrooms going to be open? So over the last couple of years, we have been involved in a building campaign that resulted in a renovation that we started back in September, and as a result of that, our restrooms have been closed, and some of you have just started attending our church uh, in the last few months. You're like, do they even have bathrooms at this church? And we do, I promise you, and... Um, but we began a renovation, a, or a building project a couple of years ago because this church was launched over 100 years ago, and the property we now meet in was purchased and developed and built by a generation of Christians before us, and they handed it on to us to care for. And so the property that we have is something of a sacred trust. And so wanting to be faithful to that trust, uh, we began a campaign some several months ago in order to renovate our campus. And definitely, or it was definitely the case that renovations were needed. And one of the pictures that I think kind of captures our need was this one. This is the men's restroom. I took this picture about two and a half years ago just before walking into the sanctuary to worship. Yes, it does say, please pull up the string. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. But we, we are reaching a point where in about the next couple months, at some point, we are going to be moving into a renovated space. This is our new women's restroom. Yeah. This is our new children's wing that's been renovated, windows added, our social hall, and then a new gathering space that we created just uh, right outside these doors in this space. And it's just going to be really beautiful and cool. And we're just really excited. And I just want to say thank you to so many of you who have invested in this project. You know, our original goal was to hit $1.3 million above and beyond our regular giving. And we not only hit that goal, but we have exceeded that goal. And so we're really thankful for how so many of you have stepped up, even in the midst of a very challenging season. The last couple of years have just, they've been hard. Anybody else found the last couple of years hard? I, I've just found it difficult, you know? But you all have stepped up and you've been faithful. And so I'm just so thankful for this church family. But listen, our vision as a church is not simply to have a renovated facility. A building project is not a worthy vision for a church. God has called us to do and to be so much more than that. And I'm really excited because right now we are on the verge of entering into a new season in our life as a church. And I think it's important that when we do enter into new seasons together, that we stop and we ask some basic fundamental questions. Questions like, why do we exist in the first place? 
What's the purpose of the church? Why are we here? What is this whole thing about anyway? What should we be about? And to help us explore those questions, I want to invite you to join with me beginning today and in the next few months together in a study through the book of 1 John. This book is going to help us answer that question, what is it that we should be about as a church? Now, this is a really good book to turn to with that question because, you know, uh, this book was written, almost all the scholars say, it was uh, perhaps the last piece of writing included into the New Testament, or the last piece of writing that was written. And it was written by the Apostle John when he was somewhere in his late 80s, maybe early 90s, so he's an old man. And he's not only old, but he is likely the last living of all of the apostles. The other apostles, Peter, James, Philip, Thomas, all of them at this point had died a brutal martyr's death, but John remained. And so here he is, the last living apostle, writing the last piece of the New Testament that's going to be included, and he is concerned at this moment because the church is now gonna be handed over to a new generation of leaders. And at this point, uh, the church has now been growing for a few decades, and there have been some false teachers that have arisen within the church. There have been some other voices that have been turning the church away from what it should be focused on. And these voices have come, and they are distracting the church from what it should be about. And in many respects, the church was in danger of losing its way. And many of the little gatherings where John was kind of a bishop, a big overseer of in the city of Ephesus, had gotten off track and they'd gotten on to, you know, they had been distracted by progressive ideology and right-wing politics and Christian nationalism and celebrity culture and health and wealth. And they had become divisive and they had gotten embroiled in moral failures. Actually, that wasn't the church then. That was the church today, right? (laughs) But they had been distracted by their own junk, and so John writes to put them back on track again and to get them focused on the main things, as if to say, this is what it's all about. There's stories uh, from Eusebius, who was one of the early church historians of John in his most aged years being carried around to house, from house church to house church, and he would lift up his head, and the simple word he would speak to these house churches is, brethren, let us love one another. And he was all about focusing the church on the main things. And so we want to pause as we enter into this new season in, a, in the life of our church, and we want to ask what might it look like for us to allow ourselves to be rooted in the main things and to be focused, to be redirected, say this is what it's all about. And John's going to help us do that. Now, a, a few words about this little book. I don't know if anybody has ever tried to read this book of 1 John. Any of you read 1 John in your life? Many of you have. And if you've not, and even if you have, I would just encourage you to read it once a week while we go through this series. It may change your life. But if you've ever read it, you know that John is a little difficult because he, he, he's not a linear thinker. 
You know, linear thinkers, their arguments proceed point one, point two, leading to conclusion point three, but John isn't like that. John is more of a cyclical thinker. And so his writings kind of go in circles, and you kind of feel like I'm getting lost. And uh, John actually uses an ancient rhetorical technique called amplification. And what that simply means is that he would open a topic. For example, one of his favorite topics is to love. And so he'll hit a topic like that, he'll open it up, and then he'll move on to a different topic, and then a little bit later he'll revisit love again. You're like, wait a second, didn't we just talk about this? And he's like, yeah, we're coming back. And then he opens it up a little bit more and adds nuance. And then he leaves it and moves on to something else. And then he comes back again, he circles back around, and he'll open it up again and add more nuance and insight. And so he continually is amplifying the meaning. And the the purpose of this kind of writing is to remind us of what is essential. And so one of the temptations I had as a preacher when I'm preparing this series is to hit this topically. And so to go through and and do a sermon on love and talk about all the stuff John has to say about love and talk about obedience and everything he has to say about, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go with John and every time he revisits a topic, we're going to go back to it again until you finally start obeying it. So although John is a bit difficult to follow, uh, the, the book can be divided fairly neatly into two main sections. So there's an intro in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and an outro at chapter 5, verse 15, through the end of the chapter. And then in the middle, there are two sections that are introduced with a little phrase that says, this is the message. And then John orients his book in these two blocks of teaching around the message, first, that God is light, and then he explores that topic, and then he opens up this idea that God is love, and then he explores that topic. And so we're going to be walking through, you know, all that he says about that. But I want to begin today by looking at his very intro section, and look at what he says. First John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his letter like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. This is how John begins this letter. Now, I can just imagine, you know, these ancient uh, apostles, writers, they would use scribes, and I can imagine John, you know, dictating to a scribe what to write, And a scribe saying, look, would you like to open up your letter the way Paul does? You know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Or uh, maybe James, James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Or Peter, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles, you know. Like, John, why don't we do this? Why don't you say, John, the beloved disciple? You know, (laughs) you're the one that Jesus loved the most. We all know that. You can set that out there. And... uh, But, you know, John doesn't open his letter the way other people open their letters in the ancient world. He does something different. You see, John is poetic. You know, um, I remember a couple years ago asking my daughters which one of our youth leaders they received the most from. And they said, you know, that's hard because they said, Athalie, she's a teacher, and we learn. And... uh, Wisdom, she's a preacher, and she gives us sermons. But Justin is an artist, and he gives us poetry, you know? 
And John is something of an artist, a poet. You know, if, if they had the Enneagram back there, he would be an Enneagram four, you know? And he always had the need to be unique. And he opens his, his letter in a very unique way. Not with uh, an, a proper introduction of himself or to the people whom he's writing. Instead, John opens his letter with a poetic statement of the most profound truth that stands at the heart of the universe. What a way to open a letter. A poetic expression and statement of the most profound truth that stands at the very heart of the universe, namely the truth that the eternal divine word became flesh and entered into human history and walked among us. Look how he begins. He says, that which was from the beginning. John's words, from the beginning, cue us up. They take us back. It's interesting. In, in the opener of what is likely the last book to be written, John calls our mind back to the first book in the Bible, namely Genesis, where he says, in the beginning, God created and then John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And do you see what he's doing? He's opening up his letter by taking us back into eternity past. Back, you know, some, if the astronomers are right, the universe is some 13.7 billion years old. He goes way back beyond that, beyond, before the sunsets that we so love and enjoy and before the fish that flood the seas, and before the, the birds that flutter above us in the skies, and before all of the ingenuity, the genius of human culture, and all of the beautiful artistic expressions, and, and the music from Mozart to Coltrane that's been created. He goes way, way back before all of that beauty, and all of that goodness, and all of that existence, and he goes back to the very ground, the very source, the very origin of all things. Namely, the eternal one himself. The eternal life that is infinite from which all finite life and all finite things have sprung. As he puts it a little bit later, you know, John, he says that which was from the beginning and then he goes on another four phrases, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning what, what, what was in the beginning, the word of life, the eternal logic or logos of God. He says next, he puts it like this, he says that life, that infinite life, the ground of all being, the eternal life was personal. The son, the eternal son who was with the father. You know, before there was anything, God was not lonely. You know why? Because the God we worship is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is an eternal communion of love. God is infinite fullness and infinite joy and infinite love and infinite existence and beauty within God's self. He was utterly satisfied within himself. The Son was at the Father's side all in the very beginning. The eternal logic, the eternal logos, the eternal Son 
was at the Father's side. And then he says these stunning words. He says that eternal life was manifest in the midst of finite human history and human existence. He says the life was made manifest. And then he says the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. Or as uh, John Stott puts it in his little commentary on this, I love this phrase, he refers to this as the historical manifestation of the eternal. The eternal principle, the eternal life of God, the eternal Son taking on flesh and humanity and walking right into human history. Or as John would later put it, or earlier put it in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the great truth of the incarnation. This is the best of what Christians believe about God. God has not left us alone. The eternal one has entered into finite existence, true God and true man walking among us so that he might disclose who God is to us in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says this, that word that was manifest among us was seen. He says that which was from the beginning was heard and we have seen him with our eyes and we have looked upon him and we have touched him with our hands. You know, it's interesting. How is it that John and the rest of the apostles and the other writers, and the, how did they come to this conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh among them. I mean, think with me for a minute. They didn't get this by reading their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament yet. John didn't have the Gospel of John to refer to. <laughs> and they didn't get it from their religious authorities. Actually, the religious authorities were threatened when God became flesh and walked among them. And they didn't get this because they were preconditioned to believe this from their upbringing. How was it that they came to this conclusion that when they were looking at Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter from Galilee, this wandering rabbi, how was it that they came to the conclusion that this was no ordinary human, but here they were experiencing the eternal, infinite God made finite flesh among us? How did they come to that conclusion? And John tells us, he says, we saw him and we heard him. We heard that voice speak and the wind and the waves obeyed the voice of the eternal one. And we heard that voice speak over a woman who was collapsed in her own tears and despair, and she raised up and felt a freedom and no more condemnation. We heard that voice speak, son, your sins are forgiven, and he walked out forgiven, and we saw him. We saw him take the fish and multiply the loaves, and we saw him walk 
on the waters. We saw the eternal one in flesh among us and we had no other conclusion to make than what we were beholding was the true God made flesh among us. We heard him. And when we heard him, we heard him speak with the kind of authority we have never heard anyone speak with. The darkness trembled at the power of that voice. And those who were enslaved in darkness were set free by the power of that voice. And oh, if you could hear the wisdom that he spoke with. When he stood up on the Sermon on the Mount and he delivered those words, nobody spoke with that kind of authority. This was the authority of the Eternal One. We saw him, we heard him. And after the Roman authorities colluded together with the Jewish leaders and they did their worst to him. And they had him crucified on the cross and he was put in the tomb and all of our hopes were crucified along with that. We, we had no more hope. He walked out of the tomb three days later and he revealed himself to us and he said, touch my hands and we touched him. And we watched the eternal power of God overcome the power of death in this Jesus. We heard him and we saw him, and we touched him with our very hands. The historical manifestation of the eternal, and he says, we testify. We've experienced something, and he sent us out to proclaim this good news to you. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, stop for a moment. How did you wind up here today? You said, well, somebody invited me to church. (laughs) Well, I, you know, this is what we always do on Sunday. What do you mean, Josh? Now, how did you, the vast majority of you, I mean, almost the whole lot of you are are a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And you've gathered together on the other side of the planet from where this little movement began 2,000 years after the... How did you get here? It's because Jesus commissioned his apostolic witnesses who experienced the risen Jesus. And he said, go and tell all of the world this news. And they went throughout Judea and throughout Samaria and throughout the ends of the earth And this generation of apostolic leaders handed on the faith to keep preaching to the next generation and to the next generation. And as people were impacted by this news, they were freed from slavery. They were set free from the powers of darkness. They started orphanages. They lifted the status of women. They started abolitionist movements. They began to work for peace and justice and share this good news that you too who are set on the outsides can be brought in and loved by God. And this news went throughout the Roman world and that generation died off and then new generations arose and then it eventually made its way here. And at some point in my life, somebody told me about this Jesus and my life was changed and the same thing is true for so many of you, isn't it? He says, that which we have heard and experienced, we went and we proclaimed We shared this message of this Jesus. And notice the telos, the very end of their proclamation. He tells us here, he says, why why did we go proclaim this message? What's the purpose of the Christian message? This message of God made flesh among us in Jesus. Why did Jesus come? 
Listen, it's not just to save you from judgment or to save you from hell or to save you from sin and death. He came to save you from all of that, but he came for so much more. He came so that you can be brought into something, namely brought into fellowship with God. He says, we declare this message to you so that you might know I love the way he put this, so that you might have fellowship with us. Think about John's fellowship that he had with Jesus. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, I I rested my head on his shoulder. We were close and tight. He said, no longer do I call you just servants. Now I call you friends. I have come that you might not only be friends, but you might be children of God. You might be brought in to the eternal fellowship that's been going on from all eternity past, brought into that eternal communion of joy and love, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, you you can be brought into this relationship that I knew with Jesus. You can have too. You can be brought in. Listen, this is important for us to emphasize You know, so often religion is used in our world today as a tool of manipulation and control. And listen, if you claim to be speaking for God, you can ask people to do just about anything and get them to obey you if they believe you. And so it is ripe for abuse. And it's been abused by religious leaders all over the world. And if you've been hurt by by people who have spoken in the name of God, I just want to apologize. Listen, this message came into the world and the original apostles preached this message and when the church has been faithful, it's preached this message not as a tool of manipulation and control. You know, we don't go preaching the gospel for the same reason that many parents tell their kids about Santa Claus. You know, and why do you tell your kids about Santa? You know, well, Well, because, you know, the season is approaching and we want to stir them with wonder, you know, and joy. Well, yeah, but it's also a tool of manipulation and control, isn't it? You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why, you know, because Santa Claus is coming to town. So get your life together, kids, if you want a good present. (laughs) And people use religion that way, don't they? But he says, look, this is not news That's supposed to be coercive. This is the best, most freeing news you'll ever hear. The eternal God has invited you in through his son, Jesus. The eternal logos, the eternal word has entered into humanity so that we can be brought in to that eternal fellowship with God. So he says, what we have Seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you can have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be full. He says, our joy is full when you know God. And he says, so this is an interdependent kind of proclamation. We are made full and enriched by you, church, when you are meeting Jesus and entering into fullness and love with him. And he says, and there our joy is made complete. And so ends John's little poetic opener. That's good stuff, isn't it? 
So I want to stand back, though, and I just want to ask this simple question. If, if, if we're moving into a new season together as a life, in the life of our church, what is this opener teaching us about what we ought to be about as a community? And if I could just boil it down into one word, it would be Jesus. <laughs> you know, as we move ahead into the future, what it will mean for us is that we will be a Jesus-centered church. You can tell John is like, look, don't get distracted. You know, you can get off in all kinds of things. But don't get distracted. This is ultimately about Jesus. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. This news has transformed everything. It transforms lives. Keep this at the center of your church. So it will mean that we will be a Jesus-centered church. You know, a couple years ago now, or a few years back, uh, we changed the name of our church from Sierra Madre Congregational Church to Christ Church. And the reason for that name change was, on the one hand, because it seemed to fit with the historic character of the facility that we're in. And if you just look around, maybe you're new to this facility, you, haven't, you just kind of notice that there's stained glass. I don't know if you ever noticed the stained glass, but it's all Christocentric. And so right in the middle of our sanctuary is the declaration of the angels about the incarnation, about this truth in John 1, 1 through 4. And in the back, it's Christ welcoming the children, saying, look, all people in this community are welcome into this family through Jesus. Up here on the wall are the four gospels of Jesus. Down here are four parables of Jesus. On this wall are four I am sayings of Jesus. Up here are four prophecies of Jesus. On this wall here is the great commandment of Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor and the great commission of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples. And we gather as a community right inside a sanctuary that represents Christ to say we as a community are a community grounded in in Jesus, and we exist for Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we are a Jesus-centered church, and we're, we're a Jesus-centered church because we want to know God. And the way we know God, it's through Jesus. John puts it like this earlier. He says, no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has disclosed him to us. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you will ever hope to know. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so we are a Jesus-centered church because we want to know God, and the way we know God most fully is through his son, Jesus. But we're a Jesus-centered church because we also want to know how to live well. You know, I've quoted this a million times, you know, uh, from Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, all has been figured out except how to live. 
If you want to know how to live, look at Jesus. Jesus is, is not just the savior of the world. He's the smartest human to ever walk the planet. And so we apprentice ourselves to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me what to do when I'm at odds and in friction with my neighbor. Teach me what to do when I want to hate my enemies. Jesus, teach me what to do, you know, in my marriage, in my friendship, in my... Jesus, I want to apprentice myself to learn from you how to live. How, how, help me how to deal with my anxiety and my fear and my worry and all of my insecurities. And I apprentice myself to you, Jesus, because you know how to live. So we are a Jesus-centered church because we want to know how to live well. And we're a Jesus-centered church because we want to know love. John is going to say in a little bit, by this we know love, that God has sent his only son into this world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, I'm like you. I carry around my own insecurities and fears. I... I, I I feel sometimes like I'm not enough. I haven't done enough. I've not been a good enough pastor. I've not been a good enough friend. I'm not a good enough parent or a good enough husband or a good enough neighbor. And listen, my identity, though, does not rest in what I have done. It doesn't rest in my performance. It, rep it rests in the love and in the grace of Jesus. And so does yours. And we need to root our own hearts and our identity in Jesus. So to be a Jesus-centered church means that you come to know God's love. Now, let me say this in, in closing, though. When we say we are a Jesus-centered church, when we lay down those tracks and we say, this is what we are about now, and this is what we will be about in the future, we have to be clear what Jesus we're talking about. You know, a lot of American Christianity is about co-opting Jesus and using Jesus to support and to endorse whatever thing they want to endorse, whether it be progressive ideology or it be right-wing politics or it be some form of Christian nationalism or health and wealth and prosperity or any, like Jesus is used to endorse all kinds of junk out there. That's not the real thing. When we talk about being a Jesus-centered church, what we mean is what John is talking to us here. It is the Jesus that is rendered to us through the apostolic witness. It is the Jesus that comes to us through the apostolic witness in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Here is where those witnesses who experience Jesus give us this disclosure. Here is where the proclamation of John is instantiated in text through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the Jesus that we need to keep going back to again and again. And we need to constantly have our own versions of Jesus deconstructed if they're being shaped by something other than the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus specifically in the Gospels that's shaped by the apostolic witness. And so may we be a community of believers, both now and in the days ahead. I mean, if you want to know, I mean, some of you are new to this church, 
And it's, it's fair asking the question, Pastor, what are you on about anyway? I hope what I will always be known to be on about, the thing that, that I will never, ever get over, is that the eternal Son of God entered into human history and took on flesh and blood and took on the way of life of a servant among us so that he might enter into the very depths of human suffering on the cross and the darkness of humanity and so break its power and walk out of the tomb three days later so that we can know his life and so that he can teach us how to live with freedom and with joy and with wisdom and with love in this world. That's what I want to be on about. That's what this church is on about. Let's pray together. Father, we want to confess to you right now that it is so easy to be distracted from the main thing, to succumb to the cacophony of loud and angry voices on social media or on the news or in the editorial pages or on talk radio. God, but we, we just ask, God, that you would, by your grace, save us from all of those voices and that you would help us to root our life and our identity as a church and as human beings in the person of your son, Jesus, your eternal voice, your eternal word made flesh among us for our healing and our redemption and our salvation in life. And we ask all of this in his great and saving and powerful name. Amen.